This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Equity Bates. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm excited, Bryce. Uh I am excited for this episode. We've said before we got on mic, this episode is either going to be epic or it's going to be a spectacular failure because... (laughs) You say whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, and when we talk about this topic, there's probably one or two people in the world that are at Warren Buffett status. Yeah. One, Vitalik. Yes. The other, an unnamed Satoshi Nakamoto. (laughs) That's probably about it because you are going to convince me. Chris Dixon's also up there. Who? Chris Dixon. He works for Andrew Andreessen. Horowitz. I think he would be a level below Vitalik. He's not building the thing. He's <laughs> no, investing no, no. in the yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But in this episode, you're going to convince me about the promise and the opportunity in Web three. I don't think there's. Well, yeah, you're right, Ren. And um, we speak about this uh, podcast being one that follows our journey of investing. So whilst we are certainly uh, uh, following the equity markets and everything that's going on in there, it is hard not to uh, not to see what is going on out in the, com- in the Twitter community at the moment and uh, that stuff around Web3. So this, is, this will affect equity markets. 100%. I mean, yeah. in some ways it already has. Unit Trust Dow, uh, which people will explain, understand what that is by the end of this episode, have basically used the Ethereum blockchain and code to remove the need for market makers. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get into it all, we are going to be having a chat about Web3. I don't know how much convincing I'm going to do of you, Ren, but I just really want to have a chat about what's going on, uh, some of the things that I understand about it. I want you to sell. I want I want to feel the excitement coming from your side of the table. That's what I want from this episode. Like you were pumped up about this. Sell I'm, it. I'm pumped up about um, understanding more about it because uh, I, I do want to say that there is, <laughs> there is plenty more to understand. I'm not even in Web3 at the moment, but come next week, I'm hoping to, hoping to be in a DAO, which we'll talk about. Um, that would be cool. And uh, so we're going to go, you know, right back and, and have a look at what Web1 was, the progression through to Web3. We're going to talk about why Web3 is starting to make a lot of noise and is um, appealing to uh, various people in the community and some of the use cases of Web3 at the moment uh, and some of the crazy stuff that's going on, including uh, a group trying to buy the US constitution. So there's plenty of stuff happening. Before we do though, Ren, a bit of housekeeping, Equity Mates Awards. Uh, we're in the current stage of taking nominations for the inaugural Equity Mates Awards for 2021. We're looking uh, to our community, to you guys out there, to nominate and to help us highlight some of the amazing things that have happened this year uh, at Equity Mates Media. We want you to shout out some of the amazing experts and business leaders we've had, as well as some of the awesome platforms and and uh, products that are coming to market. So there's going to be a link in our show notes for you to head across to the nominations page. We're looking for five key categories for you to nominate. 
best uh, expert investor from someone who's come on the show across all of our podcasts. We're looking for business leader, CEO of the year. We're looking for community member of the year. We're looking for uh, ETF of the year and platform of the year. So it'd be great if you could uh, shoot across there and, and nominate and then we'll be doing an awards ceremony on socials later in December. So let's uh, let's get cracking, shall we? Let's do it. Well, this is a Bryce episode, so hit me. Well, I just want to start by saying if uh, if you want to get excited about this, I saw a quote uh, from someone who's pretty versed in this topic at the moment, and uh, they said that learning Web three today is like buying Bitcoin at ten dollars. I hate that quote so much. <laughs> I, honestly, I hate it so much. Learning Web3 today is like learning hypertext transfer protocol in 1990. I hate that quote so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's a boring quote. Yeah, but it is it it's just in the sa- in the same way that HTTP is like was the building blocks of the original internet. Web3 if you were to be believed in this episode, well, I, I think it's it's going to be true. It will be the building blocks of the next what will become the next internet. In other words, this is uh, an amazing opportunity to start understanding and getting in on the next phase of internet that a lot of people believe is going to be an incredible wealth creating opportunity for for many people. So um, what's not to get excited about? So shall we start with a definition? Yeah, and I think we should say it has already been an incredible wealth creating opportunity yeah. for some people. Yeah, it's nuts. And it will just, it, it's likely to keep growing. But yeah, let's start with some definitions. Uh, you want to start by setting up the problem as well. Uh, we got uh, some audio clips from some people smarter than us. So let's, let's start with, well, I don't know if it is a problem. A lot of people see it as a problem. Some people don't. Some people aren't aware that it is a problem. But I guess what is going on with our current internet? If you think about how we currently are engaged with the internet, we're sort of relying on third parties who build the code, they create the code, they own the data when we engage with the internet, they own the platform and and all the economic benefits that go along with that. So, you know, for example, Twitter, they own the code, they own the platform, we engage with that, we put our tweet out there. Spotify, they own the code, they own the platform, we load everything up onto that. But we don't really benefit a whole lot from what we do and how we engage on those platforms. A whole lot of the the value goes back to Facebook. A whole lot of the value goes back to Spotify. And so the owners of these companies, even the shareholders, um, you know, they are the ones who spoil uh, more than and get rich from owning the companies and the code than the creators actually do. This is what has sort of spawned the idea of Web3 and why a lot of people are finding it um, quite appealing. Yeah. It, the internet is incredibly centralized now. Mm. And we know the names. There's like five five names that are trillion-dollar companies that control X percentage of the traffic on the internet, but that percentage is high. Decentralizing the internet has always been technically possible. Like there's been there's been ways to do it, but there's been, I guess, both computer science and game theory problems that needed to be solved to actually implement it properly. Like, you know, there's been decentralized networks in the past when Bryce used to LimeWire stuff or, you know, torrent stuff. Like that was a decentralized network. Um, You know, it was using computing powers from a whole bunch of different uh, computers around the world to, to upload stuff and download stuff. But one of the key problems that was really hard to solve was the Byzantine generals problem, mm. which was uh, how do you trust 
other parties in a decentralized network and how do you arrive at consensus in a decentralized network when you don't know anyone else in the network and but you have to uh oh, sorry you don't know anyone you can't identify them or verify their identity but you have to trust and collectively agree on outcomes mm. and that's where blockchain technology uh, allows that decentralized trust to happen and that is one of the key problems there's a few other problems but that was a key problem that has now allowed this idea of web3 to emerge yeah no longer no longer do we need these uh centralized platforms or companies to uh yeah to, to make, make that trust yeah. and make decisions yeah. yeah to verify identities all of that stuff yeah, yeah. It's a pretty uh, amazing development and one that uh, offers plenty of opportunity. But rather than us try and give a definition here, let's take a step back and understand Web 1, Web 2 and Web 3. We've got a clip here from a guy called Chris Dixon and he works for uh, the fund A16Z or Andreessen Horowitz. Yeah, it's Andreessen Horowitz. Yeah, so he's um, he's been one of the really early adopters and investors in this space and is, is considered someone to turn to to understand this. So over the next sort of seven minutes, he's really going to explain the progression. We should uh, properly cite this as from the Tim Ferriss podcast from, as well. Yeah, from yeah. the Tim Ferriss podcast. Definitely go and listen to the episode if you'd like yeah. a real deep dive on this. And if Ferris's team is listening and are annoyed that we've clipped it in the same podcast, Naval talks about sharing ideas freely. So True, and not paying for anything. And if Ferris's team is listening, epic. Epic. Ha- <laughs> hello, hello. Uh, <laughs> so here's um, seven minutes. Stick with it. It's, it's fascinating. We're going to discuss how we've gone from Web 1 to Web 3 and how you can conceptualize this whole thing. So the way I think about it is Web 1, the internet, of course, existed before the 90s, but the web, sort of this, this killer app on top of the internet, was created in 1990. And so I sort of think of Web 1 as, let's call it 1990 to 2005. The key thing with Web 1 is it was dominated by open protocol. So the web has a protocol called HTTP. Email has a protocol called SMTP. These were the platforms you were building on then. So if you were Larry and Sergey and you were building Google, you were building it on top of HTTP, on top of the web. And the web was open, which means no one controlled it. And what that means from Larry and Sergey's point of view is they knew if they built a successful product, a successful search engine, they would own it and they would control it. And you couldn't have somebody come along and say, I'm going to take 50% or I'm going to shut you down. It's the web. It was open. And similar to, let's say, in economics, if you talk to an entrepreneur or an investor, they'll say they like to invest in countries with predictable rule of law. They don't like countries where the government seizes the assets and things like this. It's the same thing that happens with startups and entrepreneurs. They want to build on a platform that they know they can trust. And so that was what was so great about that first year of the web and why you had so much incredible innovation and investment And it was, I think most people would agree today, that was sort of a golden period of innovation. But the products were limited in the the sense that it tended to be, I call it skeuomorphic, where people were taking things from the offline world, like magazines, and putting them on the internet. You go back and look at the 90s web, it was very much experienced like a magazine. You didn't have things like social networks and user-generated content to nearly the same degree. That started really kind of percolating this year, people call web two, let's call it around 2005, And at that time, you had sort of two competing models. Like, let's just take Twitter. There was an open protocol called RSS that was the obvious thing to compete with Twitter. I mean, it's still around, but it's not nearly as popular as Twitter and Facebook and everything else. And so there were sort of open ways to build social networks in the 2000s, and then there were closed ways to build them. And for a variety of reasons, I won't go into all the details, the closed ways won. And a lot of it had to do with the ease of use. The way I think about it is Web 2, the open protocols were just limited in what they could do. So if you wanted to set up a website in 2008, let's say, and you wanted to have 
sort of simulate the functionality of Twitter, you'd have to go get like a web hosting provider, buy a domain name, and do a whole bunch of other things. Everyone tried to kind of reuse domain names, essentially. Domain names in, in the earlier, in the pre-blockchain world, they're the one thing you can really own on the internet. It's your domain name. You control it. And so the open side kept trying to kind of use the domain name again and again, but it costs $8. You have to go set it up. It was very technical. Meanwhile, you go to Twitter and it's like three clicks and you choose your name and you're in and your friends are there. And, and then mobile phones came along and the whole thing accelerated. And here we are now with five plus companies that kind of control the internet. So Web3 is coming along. And so Web3 is, my definition is, it's an internet owned by users and builders orchestrated with tokens. So this new concept of a token is the kind of the key concept of Web3. This comes sort of historically from the movement that started with Bitcoin, although I think it's sort of a different branch of the genealogy or something. And a lot of the stuff's actually built on a different crypto network called Ethereum. And then there are other kind of alternatives to it. The big kind of innovation with Ethereum was it's fully programmable. It's a computer. It's funny. I, this is the most controversial thing I've said on Twitter. I got this huge, when I said blockchains are computers, they are computers. And literally, if you go look at Alan Turing's on computability paper, a comp or Von Neumann or any of the great computer scientists, a computer is something you write code and it can store things. Ethereum has a almost Turing-complete programming language and can store information. It's a virtual computer, a computer that runs on a network of physical computers which is, I think, what kind of trips people up. But it's a computer. It's a very powerful computer that has new properties that prior kinds of computers didn't have. And one of the things you can do on these is you can create these things called smart contracts, which are code that will continue to run in a certain way. And you can also create these things called tokens. And tokens can be fungible, like kind of quote cryptocurrencies are, or it can be non-fungible NFTs. And it can be something like, which I think some people have heard about now, which are things that can be represented by a piece of media, for example. You're buying this collectible basketball card or this collectible work of art, things like that. Why tokens are so important is they now provide a mechanism by which value and control can be given to users and builders as opposed to simply to centralized companies. So you can build today. There are two things. One is, remember before I said the functionality wasn't quite there for, for the open side in Web2. It's now there. You can now build something that looks and feels like Facebook or Twitter using open protocols and using this new kind of philosophy where the value and control accrues to the users of the network not to a company because there is no company and you're going to see more and more things products launched like this where there is initially there'll be some kind of r d organization that helps create these protocols but over time they go away in the same way that there is no bitcoin company and the ethereum has a nonprofit foundation that supports r d but there is no ethereum company and this is how i believe the most important internet products will be created in the future is through this kind of new means and why will it be done this way one is it's better because wouldn't it be better if the drivers on the Uber network owned Uber and got to participate more in the value creation and also in the control and governance of that system? I think that's clearly a better thing for society. And I also think it's, a, it's just going to be a winning product. If you look at people in these Web3 communities, no Web3 company, no crypto company has ever spent a dollar on marketing, including Coinbase. I was on the board for years. No marketing. Why? Because tokens are self-marketing. When somebody owns something and feels skin in the game, they want to go talk about it. They want to evangelize. I think Web3 is not only better for the world, but it's also going to beat Web2 because it's going to be more popular because the people get really excited when they actually get to participate. So Ren, let's kind of summarize that uh, together. Web1, we can classify as the read. The, it's the, the magazine style, traditional way of um, you go on, there's information, you read it, you, you use it as if it were, they've taken the magazine, they've taken the newspaper and they've just put it online. 
I'm going to let you summarize because I actually have a different conceptualization. Oh, really? Like I listen to this. I don't think it's wrong, but I I think it can be thought of differently. So you you summarize it and then I'll give my two Okay, cool, cool, cool. So then we move to web two, which you could think of as that sort of read and write. And so there's... um, there's more centralization through large companies. We know Apple, Google, we've spoken about the Facebooks. You don't get to own anything. I mean, if you do, you can own a domain name, but that's probably really about it. All Everything else is sort of centralized around these large companies. You don't really have many rights on there and you can get kicked off all these platforms at any time. Like, for example, Trump, gone. All the power, all the decision-making sits with uh, these large companies. And then Web3 is now giving ownership back to, um, back to the communities, back to the creators. It's internet owned by users. And the big thing here is the introduction of crypto and tokens and the concept of um, essentially owning property rights online. You don't think so? Look, so the Web3 narrative, and look, the technology is revolutionary. The, there's already serious runs on the board. This is going to change a lot of things in a lot of industries and we need to be across it and there's an opportunity to invest early. That is all true. The conceptualization of Web 1, Web 2, Web 3 and I'm going to say where it goes next, I have a problem with. Because for me, Web 1 wasn't reading, Web 2 wasn't reading and writing and Web 3 isn't reading and writing and owning you could write on web one. You just had to be able to write in code. It was just, yeah, it just had to be technical. Let me, I know, I know you want to jump in there, but let me finish. Web one between like 1990 and like mid 2000s was for people who were technical. Hmm. And then web two was uh, like mass market internet. And though the companies that won, they didn't win because they somehow like, grabbed a whole bunch of resources and, you know, made like claimed big swaths of the internet. They did it by accumulating huge numbers of users by making the internet accessible to everyone, making the ability to read and write and do things online and and use the power of the internet. They made it a mass market. And so the evolution from web one, web two, I don't think can be conceptualized as read to read to write. I think they're framing this from the user, not the builder. I'm saying from the user. Like you could write on Web1. Yeah, but like the- Like m- there were chat rooms, there were forums, there was a whole bunch of stuff, um, that, but it was just incredibly technical and you, a lot of it you had to be able to code. But the internet was always two ways. Yeah, but I think in what they're, what, what they're really saying is for the majority of people, the first initial concept of the internet, unless you were incredibly technical and could code. So this is, so if you let me finish, because this is where I'm going with it. Yeah. Where, the evolution from web one to web two was from the technical to the mass market. And these big companies sprung up because they made it accessible to the mass market. People are talking about web three as like the end state as like the truly decentralized internet. Where I think we're going is we're going through a massive technological leap forward, but it's going to be incredibly technical. And there will be companies that will be built on top of it that make a lot of these Web3 innovations and developments accessible to the mass market. And there will be other Facebooks and Apples and Microsofts that take this, condense it and make it easy to use and you know, allow you to manage tokens and vote in DAOs and manage NFTs and manage portability between platforms, integrating the metaverse, all that stuff. There'll be platforms that facilitate that for like your parents or 
people just who are non-technical don't mean to call call out your parents but you know i'm just saying like i think it moves in cycles i think the technology technological development happens there are early adopters who are technical and then companies emerge that make it mass market and then the next technological leap forward happens. Yeah, I think the difference though is that these new companies that do emerge, that are emerging, that are in existence now, you will be part of. Like you're, like there will be the Facebook of the Web3, but I will have a say in how that how that runs. I will be able to main, I will be able to... See, that's, I'm not convinced that's, that's one way it will go. But it could be in the same way that we're shareholders of Facebook or Microsoft or Apple now and like your actual ability to influence outcomes might not actually be that powerful because in this, like you could equitably issue tokens or you could create the company, issue yourself 50% of all tokens in existence. and That is how some of it plays out at yeah, the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah so this- I just, I think like I agree that there are worlds where this can be like truly democratic or there are worlds where this technology can create a world that is very similar to the world today. Yeah, I'm not as cynical as you, I don't think. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I actually don't think that's a bad outcome as well. I do. Well, it's just be, I think then if that's the case, then it's completely against the reason that a lot of people are setting and getting involved in this stuff. Yeah, now this is, this is something that I want to stress, and I don't want to come in as negative Nancy super early in the episode, but when I was listening to this and I've been, like, I've been keeping my finger on the Web3 polls, I would love to do an episode where I just pull out headlines from late 80s, early 90s publications and compare it to headlines of today. And because if you go back to that time and you look at how people were talking about the first iteration of the internet at that time, it was decentralized, it was utopian, it was disrupting corporate power, it was changing the world. The the rhetoric is similar in both cases and that's because the technology has the ability to do that. Yeah, I think that's the difference. But I think like human nature and psychology and all of that stuff comes into play. I reckon you could just side by side early 90s and early 2020s and you would see a lot of similar rhetoric. Similar rhetoric but the ability to do that now is completely different. Like now you can have... Like back then they could say all that stuff, but in terms of the maths behind it, actually having something that is decentralized and shares ownership, now they have the tech to do that. Do you know what I mean? Like rhetoric the same. No, I know what you mean. Like there's definitely been a technological improvement. There's the ability for that to actually happen and for it just to be unequivocally true. But again, like you could be decentralized in the 90s. There were decentralized things in the 90s. It's just that then corporate power consolidated them on platforms that got all the users. But, like, you could have built decentralised networks. But was it truly decentralised, I guess, is where the fundamentalist would come in here and say say that like yeah it, the audit trail of the blockchain now really gives it that you there's no way you can deny yeah we're getting yeah. to the limits of our technical knowledge but yeah. I, I, I would I, I look at like torrent clients or like limewire or aries and those things i would say they were truly decentralized no, because there, there was like, like a company that managed them but in this case there are also not-for-profits or companies that manage it it's just that everyone has voting power on on the blockchain but you know, like there's an there's a Ethereum not for profit that makes decisions about Ethereum. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if they truly were or not. I don't I don't know enough about the technology to say. I'm sure there's someone out there who would be like, "There's that LimeWire is not truly decentralized." Yeah, yeah. There's but, people that are tearing their hair out at this episode. <laughs> but 
I think I think we have to recognise that for the people that are tearing their hair out, there are also people that are truly confused at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, stick with us because there's uh, it's it's an exciting thing to try and understand. So, look, there's no doubt that it's appealing and making a lot of noise because of this decentralisation thing, and and um, you know, it's allowing people to get excited about not having to rely on the Facebooks to make the decision. It can be, um, you can now engage with communities and be part of communities and companies that are self-governed. And, you know, there's that whole part of society that really get on that bandwagon of no longer are the, are the corporates uh, going to be wielding the power. So let, let's just talk because we've probably haven't given enough detail and obviously the Chris clip spoke about it, but like, let's just really establish in Web2, there are companies that have shareholders and the companies are cent- make the central decisions. In Web3, there are DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, mm-hmm. DAOs, that the users have tokens uh, and their ownership of those tokens and their identity and their right to own those tokens exist on the blockchain. Let's not get into like proof of stake v proof of work but so it's on the blockchain they they own it they can prove that they have that stake and then they can vote in making decisions about what the company should do yeah an example of that would be in web 2 uber the company creates a ride sharing app and people sign up and drivers drive but uber makes the decisions in web 3 there would be an uber app where the Uber drivers are the ones making the decisions. They all have tokens and they can all make decisions. So that's kind of the this change. Yeah, and the spoils of all of that is shared among all of those with tokens. Yeah. Value of the tokens change. They very they are very much like shareholders, yeah. except they're generally like workers that become shareholders. Yeah. Now, to give you a practical example of this, if you're still confused, there's a, a DAO decentralized organization think of dow as the analogy to company in mm. web 2 just mm. for the ease uh it's it's called unit trust um they have been incredibly successful automating a process that uh, market makers had to do in web 2 but they have three billion dollars in in their treasury basically on their balance sheet you can apply for grants they have a grant program um, if you can help them build out their product or you know do do some some stuff uh, for them, if you can do work for them, they're offering grants. But rather than the company Unit Trust having a CEO that decides who gets the grant, people will apply for a grant, and then everyone who is involved in the DAO will vote on whether that grant should be offered. Mm. So that's the difference. It it decentralizes the decision making power in these organisations. That's the big change and imagine that across the internet imagine if google's product decisions were voted on by its users imagine if facebook's moderation content moderation decisions weren't decided by zuckerberg's secretive internal court but were by were decided on by its users like that think of all of these internet companies and imagine that rather than centralized authority there was decentralized authority that's the change yeah it's pretty crazy there's 1.3 million dow members globally which if you think about it is pretty small like it's tiny it's not a lot of people so if you can kind of get in they they say that to really experience what we're talking about here and um and web3 dow is the obviously the way to do it because through dow you then get 
and to exposure and access to NFTs. I was going to say, we haven't even spoken about NFTs. Yeah, yeah, NFTs, DeFi. There are a whole bunch of elements of the blockchain and crypto that exist um, and being a member of a DAO is the way to do it. Yeah, 1.3 DAO members globally and they manage uh, a total of 14 billion in assets. Mm. So it's pretty including, incredible. Including Constitution DAO that is trying to buy the US Constitution. Yeah, well, uh, let's talk about that because uh, um, for the first time in 33 years, one of 13 surviving copies of the official edition from the Constitutional Convention over in the States will be publicly auctioned by Sotheby's. Uh, it is one of two copies that are still owned by private collectors. And so this is going to auction. And so this DAO has got together and they're trying to raise, I think, about 11 million. They've raised 11. Oh, I think they're trying 20. to get to 20. Yeah, 20 million. Which honestly um, I feel like is cheap for one of 13 surviving copies of this incredibly important document. Like surely there's American billionaires that would pay more than 20 yeah, million. Yeah, maybe it's kind of, yeah. Anyway, so you can join this DAO and buy the tokens and then uh, if successful at auction, this constitution um, will be part of the DAO management owned by the DAO of which you will be a part owner given that you're uh, a shareholder, well, shareholder, so to speak, in this in this DAO through, through the tokens. So, yeah, there's some pretty amazing examples of how these DAOs are starting to play out. There's venture capital funds where you also collectively vote on what mm. the investments are going to be made, what's the investment process. Yeah, you could say you could you could say like funds management moving to this process. So that's DAOs. I think we've we've covered them um, but that's really only the start of this revolution because you you we still have to cover NFTs. We still have to cover how much easier it will be to build software and the whole like open sourced v closed and then we got to talk about use cases so let's take a quick break let's catch our breath and then uh let's keep going there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss So, Bryce, uh, this episode is all about you convincing me about Web3. We've started that conversation and I think it's important to stress start because we're half an hour into this episode and we've just scratched the surface. I know, it's crazy. This won't be the last episode we do on Web3. No way. But where do you want to take me from here? Well, let's talk about open code and how it's different to building on Web3 than it is building on Web2 because that's how this thing is going to blow up. I think. All right, hit me. So, you know, Web2 at the moment, there's a lot of closed code. You don't get access to Facebook's code. You don't get access to all these companies' codes. You might have APIs and be able to plug in and utilize uh, through your own website um, some of the features that they offer. Um, but you really don't get to take Facebook and make it better, build your own business around Facebook. One of the biggest changes with Web3 is that everything that is built built on the blockchain is open and 
that means that if you think about it conceptually as Lego blocks, Ren, you might solve a problem or, or build a, a product or an app and it's completely open and available in Web3 that I can come along and say, awesome, well, Ren, you've solved one, pro- solved one problem that, uh, that I want to do and I'm going to build uh, an additional element to that that's going to help solve a, a second problem of mine and it's like Lego blocks that are slowly being clipped together but they're all able to be clipped together because everything is open and, and shared and you don't need to reiterate and try and solve things over and over again because if, if, if you solve, solve it once, bang. So my two questions that come out of that yeah. are firstly, there's value in solving really hard computing problems. Mm-hmm. And if someone, can, if you can solve it and then someone can just take it and build upon it, like is that is that undervaluing that the solving of that problem? And then what does that mean in terms of incentivizing people to work on these really hard problems? So that's one. My second question is we already have open source software. Like GitHub exists. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. But like that doesn't, I'm not saying that it's, we've never had open source before, but I think that it's not as prolific as Web3 is going to be. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Everything in Web3 is going to be. To my, to my first question, and I'm sure there are ways that you can like tokenize the, your work and if people want to build yeah. upon it, they have to like pay you in their tokens. Mm. But I think, you know, like a lot of the hard problems we've seen solved in the last 15 years of Web 2 is because venture capitalists and people have realized and, and, you know, smart people have started companies, venture capitalists have invested in companies because they see a big economic return in keeping that software closed, solving those problems. How do you how do you replicate that incentive structure? Good question. I mean, venture capitalists are still pouring money into this space yeah, at the yeah, moment. Yeah. So that's not an answer that I have right now. Yeah. I, I would imagine that it would be still to do with the tokenization of things or there'd be some smart contracts written at some point within the code that allow the value to still be transferred where where necessary. Yeah, because it, like, it is a really cool concept to think of that you know unit trust DAO have solved this market maker problem. Equity mates could take what they've done, plug it into our Web3 development and then add and like an ETF functionality on top of that mm. and mm. they've done all the hard work to solve the market maker problem so we don't need to do that again. Mm. Great. Awesome. Now we can be an ETF provider in Web3. <laughs> yeah, look at it. And all we need to do is be a fund man like to you know do that part of the problem yeah but i just don't understand like how it all hangs together but i also don't like i say that knowing that unit trust dow has three billion dollars on their balance sheet in their treasury so they're obviously making money somehow (laughs) yeah i think that yeah i think yeah, anyway, let's take that as a as an action point for the next time we, we speak okay, about it. Okay. Because, or uh, people slide into our DMs. Yeah, but, yeah um, hit us up. Yeah. We should probably move on to some of the use cases and some of the examples. You haven't spoken about how NFTs fit into this. Well, I was just about to talk about one of the um, use cases for all of this is monetization where NFTs come into the whole thing. So let's talk about it. One of the reasons that I really, really love this is that Web3 and the blockchain and crypto now really allow for authors, musicians, you know, digital creators to be much more financially rewarded for the, for the work that they do. And this is where NFTs come into play. 
Say, for example, at the moment, uh, you're, that you, firstly, you can't go past NFTs. There's, they've been in the news. 13-year-olds are making squillions of dollars from it. They're, they're, making, they're making millions. But one of the, the advantages of, uh, of Web3 at the moment is the NFT. And let's say you're uh, a, a painter and um, for so long you have to go through the middleman to sell your paintings and it might not happen until you've passed away and you don't get to see the value of your work transpire. Well, one of the, the beauties of uh, M- NFTs at the moment, non-fungible tokens, is that uh, you can now digitize and monetize your your uh, creations uh, through the blockchain and, and be rewarded for that uh, through smart contracts as time goes on. So traditionally, if authors, musicians, the, the model was royalties, you'd make the work, you'd, you'd sell it and every time it was sold on, you'd get a small, tiny pittance of, of, for, for royalties. But mainly you were paid in upfront and that was kind of the, the model. However, now through NFTs and the blockchain and smart contracts, instead of there being a ton, ton of middlemen who are taking lion's share of profits and whatnot, you can start to actually benefit from it straight away. Yeah. So yeah. To, give a classic, to give an example of that, I create an artwork I have a smart contract that says every time this is resold, I'm going to take a percentage of that sale price and that's going to happen for infinity. Now, you know how I was talking about uh, a whole new generation of middlemen coming on? Yeah. I think when we talk about NFTs, this is the classic example of where that is the case because you've just done a very convincing job telling me that the creative industries are problematic because in the music industry there's record labels, there's Spotify, there's Apple Music, everyone takes their clip and the creator gets not much. And in the world of NFTs, that all of those middlemen are erased. Mm. And that's right. Not all. Well, oh, sorry, a lot. Like, so, yeah, 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 like record labels probably will still be there if it's music. But, yeah, well, maybe not actually. But, like, a lot of those traditional middlemen are erased. My point is that that is not the end of the state. My point is that there are new middlemen. Like now open seas where you sell NFTs takes a 2.5% clip. Mm -hmm. I agree with you that the technology could be truly decentralized, but to to get to a mass market, there needs to be, there there will be platforms that make it easy to access like open seas, they'll take a clip. But I don't think that the argument here is the, uh, the, I don't think the main argument is the middlemen argument. I think this is, yes, getting rid of a lot of middlemen. Of course, there's going to be exchanges that facilitate the transaction marketplaces. There's always going to be that, not always, but there are going to be still be middlemen. The main argument here is that you can develop these contracts for sale, essentially these smart contracts that because you can audit the process, you can audit it right back to the very, original creator the person who created it from the start no matter what happens to that nft for eternity that original creator is always going to have some skin in the game and be and be rewarded for it yeah yeah so that, that that's that is that's the big difference that is revolutionary that's yeah. like the picasso still getting paid to this day every time his artwork is sold yeah 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 that that is a step change yeah, yeah. and so i think that's where people get excited about it and um 
we can talk. It brings up a whole big question around IP and and that sort of stuff, and we can have a chat about that in a second. But um, yeah, is there anything more you wanted to add to the NFT stuff? Have you seen the Wu Tang Clan stuff? Uh, I know they originally. Is this the sale of the album? Yeah, for t- yeah, for yeah. Two million. Yeah, no, f- four. Yeah, whatever it was. Yeah. So Wu Tang Clan created an album once upon a time in Shaolin, and they only created one copy of the album, and they, then it sold to Martin Shkreli. Do you remember him? Yeah. The yeah, farmer the, bro? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So then Martin Strickelli went to jail and the US government seized a whole bunch of his assets, uh, including this album, this mm. one record that was ever produced. Uh, then the US government s- sell everything at an auction uh, and they sold this and I'm, it was a DAO, I'm pretty sure, that bought it, but someone involved in crypto, pretty confident it was a DAO, who are now negotiating with Wu-Tang to make it into an NFT and then like tokenize it so more people can listen to it wow. because because right now the only people that have listened to it is Martin Shkreli. Is there a condi- condition on it that they can't, no one can play it? Or well, no, there's only one copy in existence. But like the the Dow guys could, yeah, okay, without putting it on YouTube or whatever, doing dodgy stuff. Oh, if they did that, I <laughs> yeah. mean, like that's <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah, okay. that <laughs> if the whole concept is like valuing the creator more, and then they're like, we <laughs> own it, we're ripping it, and just putting it on YouTube. <laughs> Put it on Spotify. Um, and so, what if Wu Tang said I, they're in negotiation? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Surely you give Wu Tang a whole bunch of the tokens. No, I don't think Wu Tang need the money. I think that like this was a piece of art, like yeah, the yeah. first album where there was only one in existence. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the kind of stuff that uh, is going on at the moment. Mm. Like, there's a, there's a lot in the NFT space. But I think at, at its core, what NFTs do is solve a problem of the internet, which is that digital assets were infinitely re- replicable and ownership was impossible to verify. You know, like the reason that torrent sites and all of that existed is because one movie file could be replicated thousands of times and there was no way to establish ownership um and you know same with music and same with everything and you know we had old school copyright lawyers trying to sue people who were illegally downloading music but like the the internet you could just create more and more and more and you know photographers are a classic example of a type of creative that just got decimated by the internet because there was no way to prove like an, who owned that photo and verify that it was the original rather than people just copying and pasting it or screenshotting it and then using it as, as they wish. And so that NFT solved that replication problem. They basically established property rights for digital goods. And right now it's, you know, there's a lot of talk about it being a bubble and stuff like that, but that, underlying the fact that they're non-fungible, the fact that ownership and can be verified on the blockchain. Sure, you can screenshot it, but you'll never own it in the same way that the original person owns it. Yeah. That's the technological change. That's a step forward. Yeah, massive. All right, Bryce, uh, we are running short on time. So we haven't spoken about gaming. Yeah, yeah? massive. And gaming is where they're on the forefront of a lot of these Web3 innovations, NFTs, DAOs, all of that. So I want you to give me a bit of a spiel and convince me. And then I've got one question I want to ask you about this whole area. All right. Well, plenty of other things that I'll keep in the back pocket for next time we talk about this. But gaming, yeah, massive. It's pretty incredible. So it, there's, it, the concept is play to earn. 
it, it, it's essentially where you make actual money based on how much time people are going to arc up at you as saying actual money. Well, you, you make are, crypto, you make crypto, yeah. which you can convert, you convert into fiat at yeah, some yeah, point. Yeah. So through the flow of playing <laughs> and er, through the flow of playing and earning crypto, you can make money based on how much time and sort of effort you put into playing these games in the in the world of web3 and there's no bigger example than a game called Axie Infinity um, surprisingly, I was talking about this in the office yesterday and Darcy, our um, crypto expert uh, in at Equity Mates, is like, oh, yeah, I've got a couple of axes. Um, so we'll have to pick his brains about that and get him on the show. But essentially, Axie Infinity, players of the game acquire unique digital pets called axes and they battle other teams. It's like modern day Pokemon. Yeah. yeah. So how it works is axes are the NFTs and they're created and sold using the game's in-game currency, which is called SLP. I can't remember what it stands for. Something love something. Uh, which, smooth love potion. Smooth love potion, yeah. And then the SLP, smooth love potion, can be um, traded for traditional currency at some at, at whenever you sort of want to cash out. But it's phenomenal. Over in Taiwan and the Philippines. Philippines, it's massive. Massive yeah. to the point where people are – so it's really expensive to set up and start playing – and so people are giving loans yeah. to players yeah. so that they can get started and the loans will be paid back off the success of themselves in the game. And Philippines, uh, some, some of the uh, Filipinos are now full-time Axie Infinity. Yeah. They've got sponsorships from uh, businesses who essentially pay them or DAOs will pay them to play and then um, earn money. So, yeah, it, it's pretty amazing what's going on in the space. Yeah, I was listening to an A16Z podcast episode with one of the founders or like one of the leaders of the company that runs Axie and um, they were talking about how the whole token started. Like it was coincidental in some ways. Um, they were like issuing tokens and then all of a sudden they found that the players – created like liquidity in the market for tokens and then they were like oh there's something here and then they basically calculated the value of gameplay what that meant um and through like through that and through looking at like the liquidity in the market and stuff like that they basically figured out what salary they could play players to to play, play yeah, yeah they could pay players to play then they were like okay we can invent a concept here of play to earn where you, we pay you to play this to game. To play, yeah. Which it's, is just unbelievable to think about. <laughs> yeah. It also makes me think like what is the end state of this? I have no idea. You know, like if, if people are literally investing in other people to play games to earn money and the economics of this work because they add enough value to the game, like are we all just going to be gamers? Yeah, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but like that's not sustainable. Why not? Like that's not Metaverse, Web3. We're going to be living in a digital world. It's going to be weird and crazy and probably ultimately terrifying and social and isolating and all sorts of I, I kind of like it though. So I was thinking this morning, um, I was listening to a couple of other podcasts and thinking about this in preparation for this episode and every generation has that technology that scares them at least for me and I would assume for you, like most of the technology that we've grown up with is really exciting, you know, like self-driving cars and all this stuff. But it, the technology has never made us feel uncomfortable. 
but you like you know we look at our parents or our grandparents generation and there's at some point there's some technology that makes them feel uncomfortable where they're like smartphones i'm too old like this is beyond me yeah yeah um this might be that technology for us and the only way that you get in uh, you have to be excited by that you have to be excited by how uncomfortable and confused and how uh you know unsettling it is because it just throws out all these norms of of what you thought but like, that's the only way you keep up you can't shy away from the no, fact no. that it's uh that it's new and unsettling. Well, I think we're better at adapting to change than our parents' generation because the speed of change we've seen in our lifetime is nuts. Like I, if, if you don't keep I up. disagree with this. I reckon because I've had this conversation with my parents before. If you look on, if you put people's lives on a timeline and you talk about the change that has happened, for a lot of our lifetimes, it's been a pretty narrow band of change. It's been telecommunications. Honestly, it's been telecommunications. Internet. Well, that's telecommunications. Yeah. Yeah, telecommunications and computing if you if you want to broaden it. But like, you know, if, if you look at like our grandparents' generation, it was air travel and telephones and a whole bunch of medical breakthroughs and like life was transformed. Life's transforming now, bro. We're about to live in digital world. Well, yeah, yeah, but, but <laughs> like, we're not there yet. That's what I'm saying. In less than 30 years, we've gone from essentially not even engaging with the internet to now living in the internet. It's pretty nuts. Like Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. But what I'm saying is you could take us back to where we were born and right now to back to where we were born, like life hasn't fundamentally changed. We've just got a heap more devices. Um, we're online more, but like you could live. I get what you're saying. Yeah, but- whereas like in, in past generations, like I, I think life changed more. I mean, for our parents' generation, not my, it was TV. Grandparents, yeah. Yeah, our parents though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's close this out because we're hitting about 50. So uh, any closing thoughts? Yeah, one big one for me. So a lot of the conversation around DAOs and Web3 takes decentralization as a good, like they take that as a given. Um, And I, I think in theory decentralization is inherently better, like removing gatekeepers, removing control from one or two people or one or two organisations. I think that's fundamentally good. My big question around DAOs is psychological because right now you have 1.3 million people involved in DAOs who are incredibly invested in the space and want to make decisions and want to use their tokens and want to vote. But I think generally, if you expand it from 1.3 million to 1.3 billion, the majority of people are inherently lazy and they don't want to be voting on every decision that every organization or every platform they, that every organization they're involved in or every platform they use makes. The, the whole idea of decentralizing power has been tried before in other fields. There's been a number of political parties that have sprung up that have tried to decentralize decision making and there was one in Australia that like built an app and they were like, vote for us, elect us, but rather than having a local member make decisions, everyone will get to vote on the decisions. And then and that just really failed or it didn't, didn't pan out. When we look at financial markets, shareholders have votes, but so many of them don't exercise it. And so my, I guess my question around the psychology of DAOs is as this scales – are people really going to want to be that active in everything they use? Or do people just want to cede decision-making to organisations and people that they trust? Yeah, I think that's what it'll come to. People will just be giving proxy votes. 
but and then again, it's like how yeah. di- how different is it? The difference, I think, comes down to the value. The va- the big change is that you, you're going to still be able to benefit much more, much more from the value creation of the organisation you're part of than than you are right now. I, I agree with that. That it sort of moves away from the idea of true decentralisation if people are giving their vote to someone else because they can't be bothered. Yeah. Yeah. Or it just creates this whole other layer of middlemen. Yeah. But yeah. Look, I, I know I was negative Nancy in this episode, but I felt I felt like I had to play devil's advocate um, for some things. I think w- this is only going to accelerate more. And the fact mm. that people are listening to this episode now and have got through this episode means that they're early. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So stick with us. We'll try and uh, continue to unpack it as, as time goes on. Uh, you know, it's pretty, given that we are in the media and the creation game as well, it seems reasonably, uh, and we're in communities and all sorts of things. It's. Um, I would like to see us make Australia's first hedge fund DAO, where yeah, everyone in the equity mates community can contribute. And then we all make decisions as a collective about what stocks to invest in and we use our tokens to vote on the blockchain about it. Well, the tools are there, the resources are there. We just we need to just find need someone to be able who to can do code. it. <laughs> yeah, we need someone <laughs> who can do it. So if you can code in Ethereum or anything uh, like that, let us know. So um, Twitter, follow Chris Dixon, uh, follow Naval, um, and then just go through or even just hit up Web3 and the search function on Twitter. There's uh, some amazing people on there. Uh, some podcasts that I've recently listened to, the Tim Ferriss podcast with Chris Dixon and Naval is great. There's a publisher called Colossus. Uh, head to their website. They have uh, It's the Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast business. They have a podcast now called Web3 Breakdowns that specifically look at businesses that are engaged in Web3 and, and break them down. Pretty amazing. We can share some of our research links in this show notes as well, but just be curious. Discord, Twitter, and Reddit. Discord, true. Haven't been on it. Need yeah. to get on it. Yeah. Um, Reddit, Twitter is massive. Yeah. Yeah. I think for us, this is just uh, keep going down the rabbit hole because there's going to be so much stuff coming from this. Mm. But we get back to equities next week. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe we'll own some NFTs. We should own some NFTs, but Ren, always good to chat uh, about our investing journey and about what's exciting us and keeping us interested. So uh, we'll pick it up on uh, Thursday where we have another amazing interview from an, uh, an HM1 Sewn Hearts and Minds conference presenter, Yen Liao, over in New York, but he's uh, Australian-born, so um, it's epic. We loved the interview. If you liked the Benite interview, then you're going to love this one, so mm. stick around for it. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.